Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris, and this is the final episode of season two. And we're going out with a bit of a bang because on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Hooten of The Farm. The Farm need no introduction from me as they've had amazing success over the years. And Peter goes into great detail about his childhood influences, how the band formed or evolved over the years, their record deals and touring America, and loads of anecdotes and stories. It's a really fantastic interview and I wish we could have spoken more about all the other stuff that Peter's been involved with over the years. Maybe season three, we'll catch up again. Before we hit the interview, I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody that supported the podcast. And just to remind everyone that I'm on social media, you can search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by uh, writing a review on Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to support me financially, there's a Ko-Fi page or coffee page where you can donate £3 uh, and buy me that virtual coffee. Also coming up is the British Podcast Awards and you can vote for Back to Britpop if you want to in the listener's choice uh, section. I'm going to stick a link to that in the show notes so if you just follow the link and just put your email address in and vote for Back to Britpop that would be great. Anyway that's enough waffle from me, here's Peter. Welcome to the podcast uh, Peter Hooten, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, in the circumstances, just had all our festivals cancelled. But we were expecting that, so you know. I was looking at your Facebook page actually just to have a quick look and see what was going on, and it's it's a shame, mm. isn't it? I mean, I mean, this is the dreaded question. I've suspect you've been asked, you know, many times in the last twelve months or so. But how, how's how's your kind of lockdown experience been? And um, what what's kind of things have you been getting into whilst you've been able to work? Well, it's been okay for me, really. I mean, apart from not being able to do the things you really like doing, like playing the festivals and, and going to football matches and various things, I mean, I've quite enjoyed it in a way. You know, and I don't like to, to sound uh, glib about that because obviously there's so many people died, you know, but yeah. I think um, it, it makes you appreciate, this, you know, the things in life that are free, really, you know, mm. like, Going on walks, going on bike rides, going appreciating uh, nature more, really. You know, I think it's always been there for us, but we haven't appreciated it because we're too busy doing other things. Yeah, I think the the time for um, it certainly in the first lockdown, uh, there was a time because it, that was a proper lockdown, wasn't it? Everywhere seemed to be shut, and mm. there wasn't much to do. So you ended up. We've got a beach quite near us in in Crosby. Where the Iron Men are, the Anthony Gormley statues, you know. So I was going down the beach. I went down the beach more times than I've been in all my life, you know. Yeah, I was yeah. going nearly every day. You know, I miss going to the pub, meeting mates, miss going out to see mm. see um, groups, you know. So, yeah. And did you find yourself reconnecting with music and things from from the past that you you know you haven't? Been yeah, before? definitely. I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm. You know, I wasn't there. Uh, I actually ended up signing up to Spotify, which I was, I was like determined not to. Yeah. Because, but I mean, it's such a brilliant platform, you know, and I thought, you know, it's pointless being, you know, um, an activist against Spotify because if you're going on these long walks, you, you know, you want to listen to some, some music, you know. So I ended up uh, signing up for Spotify and, uh, it is a brilliant platform. It's an absolutely brilliant. And they might pay us peanuts for, as a platform, to, 
to, you know, to listen to stuff you haven't listened to for years. Yeah, yeah. It's been absolutely brilliant, you know. And so, you know, in terms of this podcast, obviously this has reconnected me to all the music that I grew up with. Um, are there any bands out there that you haven't potentially listened to for a good 20, 25 years that you've reconnected with? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got so many influences, you know, that uh, in terms of, you know, I did a few playlists that I was, uh, that I was interested in. But, you know, there's, there's stuff, like, um, stuff like the Blue Nile, which is one of my favourite groups ever, you know, but mm. I started listening to them again, you know. But also going through the back catalogue, like listening. I mean, I think uh, today HMS Fable was released by Shaq, one of the the great albums, you know. I think that was released on this day in 1999, possibly. So it's all sorts of influences, you know. And I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Um, there's been some brilliant podcasts out there. I've listened to yeah, so I listen to podcasts, been listening to music. Actually, listened to Lamb Lies Down on Broadway the other day. <laughs> Something which, you know, I used to love Peter Gabriel's version of Genesis. You know, as soon as Gabriel left Genesis, I couldn't listen to another note. <laughs> you know, but uh, honestly, I couldn't. Because, but and Gabriel's proved me right, you know, because I thought Genesis, uh, after Gabriel left, uh, it might have be, become more popular. Uh, more mainstream but you know Gabriel's gone on to prove to be a, you know as we always thought he was a genius you know? if I could take you back a little bit if you don't mind Peter in terms of your childhood and and music where, where, what are your sort of first memories of connecting with music and thinking it was something that you really wanted to pursue well when I was a youngster it wasn't something I did want to pursue really I was just you know I just Love music, love listening to music, but I suppose um, it was varied, really. In our, in our school, there was there was two tribes. There was the smoothies and the soul boy skinhead types, yeah. and the trucks. We were into Pink Floyd and people like that, you know. But I was I was certainly in the middle. So when everyone got into status quo, piles, whatever I think the album was called, I absolutely fucking hated it. You know, <laughs> I listened to. Uh, I was going, where's everyone in this part? So I listened to it, and it literally made me physically sick, you know. <laughs> when I was listening to it, I just hated it, you know. But I was into, you know, all sorts of... Uh, I was into Cockney Rebel at the time, and I loved Cockney Rebel, you know, and um, I also loved the band called the Alex Harvey Band at the time. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, obviously uh, Bowie, you know, I was, you know, I was into Roxy Music as well. Um, so I was listening to all sorts of stuff, really. But you know, I had I remember going around to my mates when we were only you know teenagers listening to Ziggy Stardust religiously, you know, for 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 ages, you know. Mm. Uh, and so there was all sorts of influence. It wasn't really until until punk and the Clash came along that I really started taking a you know. Um, a keen interest in music, really. I mean, I, I, I'd been a, you know, bought the odd record, yeah. But I wasn't saying that. I wouldn't say. I think even the first Clash album was the, you know, soul on the road to Damascus moment, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I've been into various styles of music, but I, I'd never been. As I say, I was in in school. I was the person who was in the middle, you know, because yeah. I like some of the. 
some of the prog rock stuff. Not all of it, of course. I mean, I, I, I even as I think I even bought King Crimson, of course, of the Kings, Crimson King. But I was more into things like Cockney Rebel, you know. And so people, the Smoothies were asking me, "Can I borrow that album, that Cockney Rebel, Cockney Rebel album?" Because they just heard Judy Teen on the radio or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, I was really into a group called Family, who had a couple of great hit singles during that period. Uh, and the lead singer was called Roger Chapman. And one of my mates at school was obsessed with Roger Chapman and is still obsessed to this day. <laughs> anyway, Roger Chapman of plays in Europe, he'll try and get there, you know, before lockdown, obviously, you know. But yeah. So I was into I was into all sorts of styles of music, but um you know, my dad used to come home with these those top of the pop LPs, you know. Mm. And uh, they were all covers, of course. I'd, I'd put it on. I go, oh, Dad, this isn't <laughs> this isn't the original. <laughs> they were all they were all covers, weren't they? You know. So I think the first record I bought was probably Python Lee Jackson. That was the first record that I, I wanted to actually buy. And I did that at Anfield at, at the football match, and it was uh, basically it was after Maggie May became successful. Uh, Rod Stewart and the Faces and I think this is when Rod Stewart had been a session singer uh, for Python Lee Jackson when he was still a grave digger or something you know but his voice was brilliant remember the record now it's an absolutely stunning piece of uh, oh. music you know and, and vocal you want to hear Python Lee Jackson it's called In a Broken Dream well, Can you remember starting to put pen to paper in terms of lyrics and writing? I was captain of the football team when the English teacher asked us to write, create, do some creative writing, uh, I wrote a, a bit of a poem, which is, I suppose, of an early attempt at a song, you know. Yeah. But you, your partner, had to, the person sitting next to you in class, that's a market, and he put something like, this poem is virgin on idiocy or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a piss take on me, you know. Yeah. And anyway, the English teacher took great pleasure in reading it out to the class, too much laughter, you know, yeah. because as the captain of the football team, you're not supposed to write poems, are you? Yeah. And especially, especially in Bootle, you know, it's <laughs> it just, you know, it wasn't going to happen, you know, but so it put me off for a few years. It wasn't until John Lennon got shot and murdered in New York that I, I, um, I sat down, started writing my thoughts down, mm. uh, and they became songs. Um, and so it put me off for a few years, you know. Uh, but um, after Lennon got shot, I was so upset that um, I just had to write things down. And, uh, you know, that, that was really the catalyst for it, really, for writing songs, you know. So you formed the excitements, didn't you, first? That was the first. Well, it wasn't me. I didn't form the excitements. That's, on, that's in some of the biogs, but that's not true. It was another... Another lad called Phil Stevenson who, who formed that band. So I joined that band uh -huh. after they did a bit of an audition. But um, um, the songs that they were singing were like songs that I wouldn't have written, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The lyrics, they weren't my type of songs. They were like, um, they're fairly punky sounding songs, but the lyrics were a bit, I thought they were, they were two like love story songs, you know, like, First one I sang, I think, was called Say You Love Me. Uh, and that was written by the guitarist and uh, a couple of other ones. They weren't my type of lyrics. So I said to them, look, 
you know, I can't really sing these with any conviction or any passion. So uh, I started, I said, you know, I'll have a go at writing some lyrics. So I did. And uh, that's how I started writing, really. And there's no real, I'd always thought I want to get to me, I don't want to get to me mid 20s uh, and then not be in a band because just to give it a go. Yeah. It wasn't an ambition, it was purely by chance that I joined the band. It was someone never turned up to rehearse of the excitement. And uh, I was just staying in the pub that night because my mate's mum ran the pub and the group rehearsed on a Sunday afternoon and used to shut between two and five because of the licensing laws. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a pure chance, you know, really. And so in terms of like, you say early, early start to sort of st- uh, write lyrics and your thoughts down, was there any kind of lyrical style or kind of subject matter that you were really gravitating towards at that stage? Obviously, uh, story- yeah. Yeah, I mean, I liked I liked the great lyricists that told, uh, you know, socially realistic uh, stories. Really, you know, whether that was from whether that was from Dylan, or whether it was from John Lennon, or in the in later years it would have been uh, Paul Weller and, and Joe Strummer, uh, and and the Specials group groups like the Specials were a massive influence as well. You know, yeah. So it was all that all that period of. 77 onwards. And I wasn't writing lyrics then, by the way. I didn't start writing lyrics till after Lennon got shot about 81, 82, you know. Yeah. I think it was 80, 81 I started. But I was a, a big admirer. I was, I mean, I got when I first got Sandinista, Sandinista got slagged off in the in the music press. I think uh, you know, famously slagged off in the NMA, you know, but I still think it's a brilliant album now. When I when I read Joe Summer's poetry, really. You know, there was a great song on there called Something About England, you know. And I just thought it was it was a work of lyrical genius. You know, it's a story of an old person telling a younger person his story about something about England. And it was an anti-war song, you know. Yeah. And the way Strummer expressed it, I just thought, you know, that, you know, that is the, that is the thing to try and... Not to emulate as such, because I'd never ever try and put myself in that bracket. But in terms of one of my favourite singles ever from that period was White Man in Hammersmith Palais. So I knew the story behind Strummer going there and thinking it was going to be a big reggae night and going to be impressed by all this underground Jamaican stuff. And it was what he called UK pop reggae. That's in the lyrics, isn't it? Songs like that, I just thought, you know, these, these are songs about life, about a life lived. So that's what I tried to do, you know. Yeah. And so, Liverpool groups weren't doing that at the time, and not many anyway. You know? So that kind of um, wanting to write about real things that are going on with people and that's <laughs> something that's followed your career all the way through, isn't it? To even so, so... Yeah, social issues, really, yeah, social yeah. issues. So the first song I wrote, I think, I quite remember, was called Violent Playground. And it was about uh, the influx of heroin into Liverpool, really. That was about... 82, 83, uh, and Liverpool was swamped with, uh, for whatever reason, you know, there's loads of theories, but Liverpool was, uh, because it was a port and because it had uh, access to, you know, uh, uh, to the, well, to Afghanistan, you know, during the uh, war with Russia, you know, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of, um, a lot of access to heroin and for whatever reason, couple of places 
South, you know, a lot of parts of inner city London was affected, Liverpool was affected, Edinburgh was affected, Glasgow was affected. And you had other places like Manchester was only 30 miles away, wasn't as badly affected as Liverpool. Leeds wasn't as bad, Birmingham wasn't. So there was a, I think it was a, because of the makeup of the city, probably mass unemployment. I was a youth worker at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so that was my first attempt to write about um, my experiences, really. You know? And uh, then he had, um, yeah, you know, he had songs which were coming out, which, you know, uh, songs like um, Shipbuilding, uh, which were very influential. And songs like that, you'd think you'd hear it and go, oh my God, that is unbelievable, you know. And it's about the Falklands War, wasn't it? Shipbuilding. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, subtle references, so you, it's not an obvious reference. But I got into, you know, um, I got into all sorts of music, but I'd say I was going out a lot then. So I was going to clubs a lot and I'd hear various, um, there was a brilliant club in Liverpool called The State, which probably a lot, not many people know about. Everyone knows about the Hacienda, but I think if you had people who went to The State and The Hacienda, a lot of people would say the state was a better club because it opened in 1980. So you were listening to New Order in 1980, 81, and in a nightclub setting. It was an old ballroom, so it was a massive space. So it was like a warehouse, you know. Yeah. So we were getting listening to stuff like that, and then uh, the Clash, Magnificent Seven. Then when Big Audio Dynamite came along in 85, 84, 85, listening to that in a nightclub, you know, it was the forerunner really to to the, you know, the house music explosion, you know. So you were listening to, you know, groups like The Cure in there, you know, and groups like, um, you know, you'd hear the specials in there, you'd hear us, you know, you'd have, you'd, have, you'd have all a different, an eclectic range of music, not just not just dance music, you know, not just um, Let's Dance by, uh, you know, Bowie. Um, yeah. You'd, you'd hear next to that, you'd hear a, a reggae track, you know. Yeah. And then you'd hear Magnificent Seven. So it was a mixture. It, when people were describing Balearic sounds in 1989, 90, what they meant was listening to a house record next to an indie record. Mm. And that's what was happening. And I'm not saying it was a forerunner, but it was, it was certainly that's what we were listening to in Liverpool, you know. And it was a magnificent club, you know. It really was. And the Beatles and Hacienda as well. And the Hacienda obviously became popular about 87, 88. But it was empty when it first opened for years. Yeah. The state was packed every night from Thursday to Sunday, from 1980 when it opened to 1991 when it closed down. You know. The band then evolved into the, what we know now as the now know as the farm then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, so that by 83, we changed that into the farm because we were rehearsing on a farm and the guitarist uh, named Steve Grimes, who's still in the band and became the chief songwriter with me, he used to uh, go out with a, uh, someone from who lived on a farm. So they, it was like a, I wouldn't say it was a hippie commune because it wasn't, it was more a free house, you know what I mean? And the mum and dad would let would welcome anyone in, but lots of people were going there having parties, you know, in the in the barns and that. And we were a, we were we were able to rehearse there for nothing. We didn't even have we said, Oh, what do you want some money for the electricity? Because we had to plug the out. No, you're all right, you're okay, you know, you're okay. 
Mm-hmm. And that was the type of place it was. So we ended up caught. We couldn't really get a name. So we ended up, we didn't think the excitement was great. <laughs> it's, you know, a bit punkyish, you know, but uh, yeah. And uh, so we ended up, well, we're going down the farm. So we ended up calling ourselves the farm. And did you have, a, in those sort of early sessions, when you kind of established yourself, or kind of re-establish yourselves rather. I mean, did you have like um, an idea of the kind of sound that you wanted or were you just playing with certain influences at that stage? We wanted a sound that was, yeah, we were obviously obsessed with the Clash, but we liked the way the Clash did, you know, uh, did reggae type stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Police and Thieves, we always used that in our set. So we certainly had a, a way of trying to get like that Police and Thieves sound, you know. And I suppose the specials, that type of sound, you know, so we were a bit, and like we used to get John Peel sessions and John Peel would say, you know, I've told the farm, I, I wish they'd stop trying to do reggae, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we just liked that offbeat sound, you know, and uh, you had just, a, there was a, a real um, danceability to it, to it, isn't it, as well? It's obviously in terms of what the lyrics you are, or what you're portraying in terms of the words and what's coming across. You know, regardless of what message you're bringing, there's that that real sort of atmosphere that you create, and like like I say, danceability that's really signature to yourself. Yeah, yeah, we were we were trying to just basically give people a good time when you yeah. come to you know we 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 grown up with with the likes of the specials and and the jam and the clash and everyone seems to have the time of their lives, not only on stage but also in the audience, you know. Yeah, you know, we were we were the total opposite to a brooding band who took themselves too seriously, you know. Yeah. So that's why when we did, when we started playing, um, when we started doing videos, when we had the money to do them in 1990, we always got characters in the in the in the videos. Like we had Bill Dean from Brookside, Harry Cross from Brookside, and we'd 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 really looked at the way Magnus had done uh, videos and they all seemed to be having a great time, you know, because it was a working class sense, you know, it was a working class thing that, you know, within the pop music, what, you know, what could possibly go wrong, you know, and uh, and you can see that in their videos, you know, and I think we would, you know, the, it was a hot scotch of different ideas and different influences, like, but we'd certainly, you know, we'd grown up with the Beatles as well, um, yeah. even though We'd sang Phony Beetle Mania was bitten the dust, uh, along with the clash. Um, we also were big fans of the films that they did, the Beatles, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and they were always having a laugh and tongue in cheek, you know. So that's I think that's the the way we went, you know. And so there's similar sort of uh, tone and themes as you were saying, like to the monkeys as well, that kind of yeah. almost sitcom feel to it in, in terms of you could drop in at you guys. Yeah. Like Slade as well had that similar thing going on, didn't they? Where you could just drop yeah, in they did, yeah. feel like you could hang out with the band and they'd be all the different characters and things. That's certainly, I mean, we, we it wasn't too contrived. We weren't thinking about it too much, but yeah. I think because of those influences that I had uh, made us want to go that way or made, you know, suggest that to, you know, when we were doing a video, well, what should we do? Oh, let's go to Southport Fair and do Groovy Train on a, on a miniature a railway with Harry Cross on it. It just seemed the most natural thing. Yeah. And we were probably thinking of uh, Casey Jones, that's, you know, that type of 
yeah, as you say, monkeys, tongue in cheek, the Beatles, you know. And so with with the the debut album Spartacus going to number one as a as a band in their first release, that must have been an amazing time for you. It, it was, but I think we were so busy at the time that there was no time to sit down and, and gloat, if you know what I mean, <laughs> or even appreciate it. We were just so busy that, um, you see, we'd spent from, from our first Peel session in 83 to 1997 years. It was like our apprenticeship, really. We hadn't, we'd had lots of help of people, but the ten, people who tended to help well, people like Suggs from Madness, uh, he produced some stuff, you know. Mm. Uh, Paul Heaton and Stan Collymore from the House Martins. UB40 even helped us out, you know, and offered to to um, to produce us as well. So we always had this help from people that we saw as, you know, our peers. Mm. And Mick Jones as well. Uh, but record companies could never see it. They could not see it. They said, wait, you haven't got an image. Where's your image? And this was, of course, 10 years before Oasis. Yeah. You know, so we were we were telling them, well, this, this could be the biggest image in the country to ever see because we'd seen what the jam had become. Yeah. You know, and they had hit single after hit single. And they were playing to people that crossed over to council estates who also read the NMA because the jam were in it, you know. And I think that's what was happening or that's what we hope to be able to do, you know, and I think uh, James Brown was the featured editor of the enemy at the time, famously started loaded a few years later. Yeah. Uh, but he was saying when the farm were on the front cover of the enemy and when the Happy Monday was on the front cover, uh, they sold more copies than they'd ever sold before, you know, yeah. because people were buying them on in council estates, you know, and I think that was... I wouldn't say it as an intention, but we just dressed up the way we dressed up, cuckoos and now everyone would see Oasis and go, oh, that's a pop star image. But at the, in 84, 85, when we were dressed like that, record companies were shaking their heads, you know, that's not yeah. an image. Where's the flowers in the back pocket? Where's the Kajagoo hairstyle, you know? Yeah, Where's yeah. the Frankie Goes to Hollywood image? You know, that's what they regarded as the, you know, that's that's an image. You haven't got an image, you know. Yeah. And we were very stubborn, because, not because we it was contrived image and wasn't choreographed at all. It was simply because that's how we felt comfortable going on stage. It wasn't until 89, 90, uh, when Manchester kicked off, the um, record company started to realise, my God, this could be massive. People who look like that could be massive, you know. Mm. And by then, we, we were doing it ourselves with... Uh, We'd set up our own label because no one had signed us, you see. But by 1990, as soon as we really stepping stone in April 1990, uh, everyone wanted to sign us, but we were just giving them two fingers and going, No, we, we're not interested. Yeah. Because we, you know, we'd wanted a deal before that, but then we realized we had a financial backing. Uh, some lads that we knew started the record label called the produce, and it was all our idea as well as their their money, you know, so we'd sit down and we'd plan what we're going to do. And we had a brilliant manager, Kevin Sampson, who was like the Malcolm McLaren of the operation, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it comes to the point where the KLF were ringing our produce records up going, who's behind this? Come on, who's behind it? <laughs> they they were convinced it was, a you know, it was Tony Wilson type character. And, 
But it was all done really on natural enthusiasm. Obviously, we had financial help of uh, of somebody linked to the uh, Littlewoods family, the Moores family. Uh, so they were working the in the offices, the record label. But a lot of the ideas were coming. From Kevin was saying, "We need this studio. We need to go with this tour. Um, we need to, you know, we need to have this promoter. We need to have this plugger. We need to have this press officer." So all these decisions were getting made. It was like, it was like, a, it was a strange feeling because from struggling to get a bit of press, we couldn't get, we had to stop the press. You know what I mean? Because there was so, it was like an avalanche. Uh, and that was because we got a press office. We had four pages in the face before they did a track because of the way the Manchester scene had taken off. Everyone was saying, well, where's the originators of that scene? Who looked like that, and it was it was the fun. Yeah, we were the originators of that scene. We're the only group who looked like that. You know, what, was there uh, any uh, was there any competition between yourselves and the other bands that were you would consider to be Manchester and and that kind of baggy? Scene? Yeah, I think there was. Yeah, but we never called it baggy then. That was a retrospective term. I think. Yeah, it became a bit of a term of abuse. I think really from from the melody maker or whatever, but. Met Sean Harder a few years ago when he was saying, you know, we saw you on Oxford Roadshow and we done the Oxford Roadshow after the appeal session in about 84. And he said, we saw you in your cord jackets and your tweed jackets. And went, you know, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. So we, he never, he never ever mentioned that in an interview, you know, but now at 20 odd years, 30 years later, people can open up a bit more. Can't they? You yeah. know, we did an interview with about, with James Brown about the origins of that look, you know, because they were a working class band from Manchester and they saw a band from Liverpool who, who had the same attitude as them, you know. So there was a bit of rivalry, but by the time we were having hit singles and they were, you know, I think everyone was too busy doing their own thing that the rivalry had evaporated a bit, you know. I mean, we the Mondays played with us in Liverpool in 87. They supported the farm in 87. They'd come to see us in Manchester about 87 and come bouncing into the dressing room with cricket hats on, you know, and bobble hats and all that. And we were thinking, oh, that's a bit weird. What's going on here? <laughs> because it was still the height of football hooligans. We thought they were setting us up, you know. We were saying, come to the pub with us, come, come down the hill. And we were just a bit suspicious of them. But then we did invite them to, to Liverpool to play at a gig, you know, and the loudest band I've ever heard. And there was only... 20 30 people watching them, yeah, yeah, because uh, everyone was in the bar going, Look, you know, that type of attitude. Oh, they're a band from Manchester, they're not, you know, wait, we'll go up, see the farm, but not going to see them, you know. But uh, it was a really, you know, blinkered attitude. We were trying to convince people out of the bar to go and see them, you know, yeah. So we lost touch with them for a couple of years until about 89. Yeah. The competition seems to kick in in sort of the the mid to late nineties with the Britpop era, with bands yeah. know, always competing themselves against each other to yeah. for, for chart position and uh, within yeah. the press. Your experience of the of the music press and how it treats bands. Do we ever have any like negative experience with like the likes of Enemy and the Melody Maker? Oh yeah, I mean we were we couldn't they couldn't get enough of us from nineteen ninety say about March 1990 till about uh, September. So it was probably 
18 months, September 91. And then grunge was coming along, wasn't it? Uh, and we'd heard Nirvana in America when we were on tour with Big Audio. And we'd heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. And we'd heard it not. What a brilliant record. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. You know, we didn't think, well, that's going to blow away all that progressive stuff. And we'd say progressive. I mean, people experimenting with different types of sounds, you know, different types of mixes, different remixes, you know. But I think it was the first time we played in Newcastle about Christmas 91. It was the first time in like nearly two years we hadn't sold out. Um, we were going, what's happened? What's happened? So there's this group down the road playing at the university called Nirvana. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that was the first inkling that we knew that something else was happening. But because there was a chink in the armour on various songs hadn't gone, you know, done well in the top 40 or whatever, uh, the music press then got the daggers out. And I think they got the daggers out for everyone, you know, it wasn't just us. Uh, but they were writing, you know, they were writing our, our obituaries, really. You know, and I think we had an album out called Love, See, No Colour in 92. And, you know, there was one particular journalist in the enemy taking a chance to uh, do a hatchet job on us, you know. Yeah. Totally, totally, probably written before she even heard the album, you know. But, yeah, so there were never negative experiences. But for a, for an 18-month period... We were on every front cover going, you know, every yeah. front cover. And our press officer won, you know, the press officer of the year because she'd had more front covers than any other any other press agent. Uh, and it set really Alan McGee always says this to us when we see him. You know, we we laid the groundwork for for the deal that he did uh, with Sony and Creation. He he used the farm as the template. Uh, because we did a deal with Sony in 92 uh, and licensed uh, the label to um, call M Product. Then it changed the name from Produce, but we split up with Produce. Yeah. And we, um, it, was a, it was a licensing deal, uh, but it was distributed by a major because they'd said how many records did Spartacus sell. And we did Spartacus all off our own bat. So it was it was recorded and released to various independent companies all around the world, you know. So it was hard to keep track of them. You know, we went to one in Spain, and they were a bootlegging company. Oh, right. <laughs> and the album got to number one in Spain. But, uh, you know, whether they accounted to us, I don't know. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah. I have no idea because it was all, it was, it was every territory had a different label, you know. Yeah. So they said, oh, well, whatever you've sold, we could sell three times as many, you know. So they give us a massive deal, um, which we went with. Uh, but really, we just should have uh, retired on that or bought a property in London and just lived off of it. Yeah. But instead, we spent a year in London in hotels recording, you know. And uh, a lot of the advance went on the recording sessions, you know. I mean, I guess you guys decided to split up amicably, and what was it? Something that you just felt had run its course, and we just drifted apart. Yeah, and we did a we did a, an album in '93 called Hollow Below that was only released in you can get it on Spotify, but it was only released in in the states, and that's because Seymour Stein, who signed us for Sire in the states, legendary. Uh, 
music mogul on the States who, who's signed the Ramones and Talking Heads and Madonna and that, you know, he, he'd signed us and they still believed in us, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but when that didn't, you know, we, we had a, a single off that called Messiah, which is all about David Koresh. And if you listen to it now, it sounds, it sounds great. But, um, mm. you know, all you've got to do is go onto YouTube and see it's only had a few thousand you know, a uh, few thousand views, whereas altogether now is, you know, it's millions and millions, you know. So it just shows you that, you know, that that song is still and groovy change the same, whereas Messiah, which is just as good, I think, never got the exposure, you know. So we toured America in 94. I think I felt as if that was about it. You know, the group had been together for like 10, 11 years. We're all getting on each other's nerves, I think, on a tour bus in America. Yeah. And, you know, from 91, when Groovy Train was in the Billboard top, I think got to 41, but it had been around for a while. And it was number one in every modern rock station, which is their indie stations. And we'd been on tour with Big Audio Dynamite and everywhere we go, and it was like, you know, farm mania, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, I was doing interviews from in a hotel room. And this is why people do press conferences. Because I do like eight hours of interviews talking. And then my voice, you know, your vo- you could see, hear your voice getting weaker and weaker. And then you'd have to go out in the nighttime and sing. Yeah, yeah. Know? So that's why people do press conferences. And, that, and by the time 94 come along, you know, we realized, you know, we probably hadn't, we hadn't spent enough time. And we'd never like what we were this type of band who were. Like you two are, are going to crack America, you know. It's a it, it's it's a massive country, and you've got to spend all your time there. But we were home birds, really. So the most time we ever spent in the states, I think, was two months. It always seems to be with the the interviews you see, and certainly from the, the, the guests that I've had on the podcast, that America is always a make or break situation for all the bands that go mm. there, more or less. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I think it is, you know, and I think you you're so pleased that you're touring there. And it's so it's such an eye opener going there because people say, you know, what's America like? So well, what's fifty countries like? Because every state's different, you know. It's all different, you know. Mm. Uh, and it was fantastic experience, but you know, I couldn't live there for six to nine months and try and crack it, you know. As such, we wanted to get home, you know. And mm. we were offered we come home, and we were offered the. Uh, this was in ninety one after we, you know, we were. Uh, we just toured with Big Audio for six weeks or whatever. And we were offered New Year's Eve, Times Square, you know, for the opening of uh, the new year in Times wow. Square. And we knocked it back. <laughs> <laughs> because there was group members going, no, oh, no, Christmas and New Year with the family. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there was no, you know, there was, you know, if you'd been that type of uh, group who would uh, I wasn't saying it wasn't because we were, you know, we weren't ambitious. It was just a case of fucking hell. That's a bit of a trek in it for, for one gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Peter, about the legacy of um, All Together Now and and, and yeah. how, how you feel about it. Um, it's kind of its own entity now, isn't it? Yeah. It's like its own little country, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, what, I, what I like about it is different people have different interpretations of it, you know, and 
I mean, uh, it was written as a peace song, and that's what I'm most proud about. That you know, people take it seriously as a peace song. You know? mm. But it obviously is identified with football. So when ever uh, football tournaments on, you can see our Spotify listeners, you know, rocket to you know, uh, we added probably a hundred and fifty thousand for a few weeks. You know, when Spotify is on, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's you know obviously I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the song. Um, and when um, when we did when we did the justice tour to raise awareness for Hillsborough mm. in 2011, so it's 10 years ago now. You know, uh, Mick Jones said that's our that's our song. I said no, Mick, it should be a class song. Went, no, no, that's our song. That encapsulates everything. Mm. And like for, for Mick Jones to say that, I was nearly in tears. I didn't show Mick, I was nearly in tears. <laughs> but, you know, I'd followed the clash when I was a kid, you know. Yeah. I'd been to, to Paris for seven nights in Paris, you know, and and I idolised them, you know, and I'd met someone a few times. And, in fact, one trip when we were in America, he was on tour with the Pokes, Joe Strummer. And then we all met in a hotel room. Yeah, someone had been ringing my hotel room going, it's Joe Strummer, come to this, you know, room number whatever. And I'd just go, fuck off, put the phone down, you know, <laughs> thinking it was a wind-up. But in the end, Mick Jones, I think, rang. And Mick, Pete, Pete, we're in this room, you know. Joe's here with the Pogues, because he was touring with the Pogues, yeah. singing for them because uh, Shane McGowan was ill. Now, if you'd have had a bucket list of that, Shane McGowan versus Joe, you'd you know, you put your money on Joe every day, wouldn't you? But, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, so anyway, I ended up four, five, and one. I went to their room. There's Joe Stormer, Mick Jones, Suggs from Madness because he'd come over because he produced Spartacus, you know. And we're all sitting there and, you know, having a good chinwag and that. And, and then the, uh, Mick and Joe decided the clash were getting reformed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they said, Pete, if we reform and tour America, you're the support band. That's all I want. That's all I ever wanted to hear, you know. So, um, so that's that 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 does me, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I haven't told many people about that story, but eventually it will be. I will write write exactly what happened down, you know. And yeah. Joe gave me a pair. He said, "If you we were doing Love to You Color the next day in New York for the video," and he said, "If you got a pair of Ray Bands." And I went, no, no, I haven't got any with me. And he said, you've got to have Ray-Bans on a, in a, on a um, New York shoot. You know, yeah, I'll take mine. So he gave me his Ray-Bans, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Which I, later, I found out a few years ago when I took them to get fixed. Uh, the opposition said, well, what, what are you fixing these for? I said, because they're Ray-Bans. He went, no, these are copies. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me some copies. That he oh, bought for five dollars or something. Still, but it was the sentiment that counts. Absolutely. In terms of writing that song as well, all together now, and when you were putting it down and laying the tracks down, and uh, you were rehearsing it in the room, did you have an un, uh, any kind of feeling that it would it would do what it would do? I mean, I know you, it's difficult. It's a difficult question. <clears throat> no, not really. Um... It was an original song called No Man's Land that we did in our very first Peel session, but it was like more like a jam, fast song, you know. It wasn't until but our, our guitarist Steve had said, I think he, he'd been saying this for years. He'd been saying it to me for years. I think 
pack a Belge cannon would work with your lyrics on No Man's Land. Uh, and in the end, we, we tried it, and it did, but we didn't have a chorus. And it wasn't really till um, we rehearsed on one day that I came up with the chorus, you know, and it was like we'd just come back from Ibiza in 1990. And the way the lyrics just fitted all together now, you know. Mm. Uh, every when we went to Ibiza, you know, all different types of people were over there, all different, you know, all different races, all different country, you know, mm. nationalities. It was fantastic. So and then we were going to like Pasha and the Ku Club, you know, and uh, space and places like that. So it all just fitted in, you know, all together now, which just be just came naturally you know. didn't really didn't really appreciate it at the time we recorded it and we couldn't stop playing it we thought oh, this sounds good yeah and then Shash Smash convinced Suggs you know to come into the can he could, could he come in and listen to it because Suggs must have told him about it you know come mm. in to listen to it and say can I get Andy McDonald there who ran Goldis Shaz was a, an A&R person for Goldis at the time so Chas Smash brought in Andy McDonald and he heard it. This was about October 1990 when that's Christmas number one. That's no doubt in my mind that is a Christmas number one. He said, but if you stay with your own label, it won't be. He said, you know, it'll do well, but it won't be a Christmas number one. And he said, if you sign to us now, and it was a it was a lottery winning sum, you know. Yeah. Uh, you sign to us now, it'll be a Christmas number one. And you know. Go just to get right behind it, you know, and the rest will be history. And we went, nah, you're all right. <laughs> oh, it was like the, you know, the sense of like, we don't really need a major label now. We're doing it ourselves, you know. It was like, and we thought that was the best way to go, you know. Yeah. So when Spartacus come out in March '91, it was a number one through sheer demand, you know. Mm. Couldn't if we'd have gone with a, a record label like Goldis, it might have sold more. I don't know. It might have, you know, we might have had to uh, license it to do independence all around the world, you know, and we might have seen more of it. But it seemed the right thing to do at the time. You know? It was the spirit of independence, really. You know, we can do this. Which is kind of followed. It's followed you all the way through, isn't it? In terms, of, especially from exactly from. <clears throat> Almost yeah. like, and what you've done ever since as well, even apart from the farm. But you, you've, yeah. really, you've, you've just um, this year was the 30th anniversary of of Sparta. Yeah. So you guys have got back together and have been back together for a while now. And and how? Yeah, we. How's that going? Yeah, well, when I say back together, we do we do festivals, you know. So yeah, I think about 2005, the Mondays asked us to do a few gigs with them. Uh, and we hadn't really played since the 90s, 10 years before, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the reason was the guitarist, Steve, didn't want to reform, you know, didn't want to play live. But unfortunately, he got, a, he got a bowel cancer in 2003, 2004, diagnosed. Mm. And a few times he said he thought he was dying. You know, he had major operations and... Uh, part of his bowel removed. And he said when he was in his hospital bed, he, he was thinking... Why didn't we play more? Why didn't yeah. we play live more? He must have been thinking back. And so when he re thankfully recovered and the Monday's offer came in, he said, yeah, you know. So ever since 2005, we've done festivals, you know, and mm. we've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed it. 
And what was it like yeah, putting yeah. Um, what was it like putting the the, the the anniversary compilation together? Was it was it quite um, satisfying to get some tracks and remix remixes together? Yeah, well, that uh, BMG was well, licensed to BMG now, mm. BMG Records. So they they just went around the world trying to get remixes that no one had heard before, you know, and licensed them off Sire Records from America with a lot of the mixes we had made, you know. So there's loads of stuff on there which were never released on vinyl even. Uh, they might have been released in America on vinyl, but they're all on there on Spotify now and on other other platforms, Apple Music and various other ones, you know. But um, yeah, so it's a, it's you know there's there's a lot a lot of stuff on there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of stuff I'd never heard before, you know. Different mad mixes from America, you know. From but um, yeah, so it's that was uh, you know it was good to. It was good to get that out, um, and also to to be able to listen to them. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's the plan, Peter, to just to continue to sort of, you know, do festivals and play these gigs and these 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 events. Yeah. Organise. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. That's that's the plan. I mean, unfortunately, most of them have been either put back to the autumn. Um, I think we had in twenty twenty, you know, ten, eleven festivals lined up. Some of them got put back to this year. Yeah. Not all of them, but you know, they've they've dwindled. So I think we still might have four or five left on in September, October, but who knows whether they're gonna let them in. I don't yeah, know. yeah. And do you think you might get some new material or do you think you'll is this... Well we've got an album's worth of material. We've done all the demos and we did that just before lockdown. Ah. Um but so we've got we have got stuff and if you go on to um if you go onto our website, you know, the farmmusic.co.uk, there's, you know, our, on our website, we've got loads of uh, T-shirts available now. But we've also got a CD available of, of an, a mini EP, you know, mm. that we did a couple of years ago called Feel the Love. You know, we're pretty pleased with that, you know. And how how's the writing changed for you? And Have you found different things to draw upon over the years for that? Not really, because I've always written about stuff that was contemporary, you know, so stuff that I'd listened to on the news or, mm. you know, one of the first tracks I wrote was called Hearts and Minds. And now Hearts and Minds is everywhere. That's a, it's a common expression, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When I wrote it, 83, it was during the, you know, I think it was during, it was an American general said it. You know, yeah. we got to win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people, you know, something like that. You know, uh, you know, I uh, just thought, what a mad statement, you know, the hearts and minds. And so I wrote this track called Hearts and Minds, which is really a track about, uh, about Thatcher, really, and how people were standing up. You can't have, you can't take our hearts and minds, you know. So I've always tried to write about contemporary stuff. So, yeah, um, all the new songs are about various things like that, yeah. There's certainly a lot to write about uh, currently in terms of. Well, there is. I mean, it's really surprise. I mean, you know, it's surprising, but the way you know British politics is just even American politics is is incredible. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, the very fact that you know no one can, no, you know, unless you unless someone's um, unless someone does, you know, something. Extremely, like look at what's happened with Hancock, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been ridiculed. He's, you know, you know, even the 
Even Johnson agreed that we should prefer. No, he's not going to resign. Is he? It's not going to happen. You know? yeah. It's 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 Thatcherism on acid, really. You know. Yeah, yeah. These are the um, the bastard sons and daughters of Thatcher, I think. You know. Yeah. But I thought we were coming away from that neoliberal politics because it's been proven to be a disaster. Because yeah. if you look at you know the housing shortage in the UK, a lot of it's down to the fact that the right to buy for council houses, you know. Mm. It was proclaimed as a great liberator of the working class. But a third of those houses are now in private hands of multi-owners, you know, ownership. Mm. So, they, you know, because the families have sold them on to make it, so they haven't kept them in the family. They've sold them on to uh, property speculators, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's why you've got such a massive shortage, you know. But Well, let's end on a positive note, if I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter, what would be yeah. your... Final question from me, then I think Peter, and I'll let you go go off uh, into Monday night. But um, what would be your favourite? What track do you think would you be the one that you're most proud of in terms of your career? That I've written, you mean? Yes, yes. I'd say my favourite track, you know, is "Love See No Colour," um, because especially what's happened in the last year, you know, because it's making a statement, you know. Mm. Uh, and it's when I was a kid I was obsessed with West Side Story which is basically Romeo and Juliet isn't it yeah yeah you know and there's been so many films based upon the Romeo and Juliet principle but I was obsessed with West Side Story and the songs in it you know and there was a song like Somewhere when I was a kid I used to sing that at the Christmas parties when all the family used to get around and, and sing this is what we used to do in Liverpool you know because probably Irish backgrounds or whatever you know but um, so I'd say love seeing no colour because it's in that in that line of that um, template of, yeah. uh, and I saw the slogan a Rastafarian was selling t-shirts on Venice Beach in LA and that's where I saw the slogan love seeing no colour you know? and, Rasta, and I thought I bought one I went oh brilliant <laughs> and he went yeah man love seeing no colour you know I just thought that you know yeah, it's perfect, you know. And I'd say that's my proudest, my proudest lyric, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Peter, it's been amazing uh, to speak to you tonight, and get. I think we could probably do another hour, but uh, I'll let you go. Yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe part two uh, for the next series, then. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we only touched on a few subjects there. As I say, <laughs> that's an hour, but you know. podcast should only last an hour i think yeah anything longer than that you lose the audience don't you that's golden rules yeah yeah. (laughs) Mm. um again uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you uh, peter about everything you've been up to yeah and uh, no thanks a lot pleasure to speak to you massive thanks to peter for joining on the podcast it was an absolute privilege to speak to somebody who's been so influential in the music industry and uh, the indie scene over the years and just to remind you if you want to vote for batch of Britpop in the listeners choice segment of the british podcast awards you can do i've put a link to that in the show notes also another reminder that you can follow me on instagram twitter and facebook just search for batch of Britpop. leave a five-star review and a short review on apple podcasts that would be amazing as well and there's the ko-fi link as well if you want to donate £3 and buy me that virtual coffee. Yep, so that's it for season two. I may drop the odd bonus episode here and there, 
before season three officially starts uh, at the end of the summer. And again, thanks so much for listening and all your support. It's really greatly appreciated. So until the next episode, take care.